This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmond.edu. Felicia Wu Song, welcome to Viral Jesus. Social media in particular is industrializing us, like us as people and our relationships. And what I mean by industrializing us is that it is taking our identities and our relationships and applying a market and bureaucratic logic to how we understand and navigate those. From Christianity Today, this is Viral Jesus, a show about communication and the power of social connections, where we talk to some of the most influential Christian content creators to find out how they've made their faith go viral. I'm your host, Heather Thompson Day. So you know how you kind of panic when you reach for your phone and you can't find it. That's because a new study in the Journal of Cyberpsychology, Behavior, and Social Networking found that people who associate their phone devices with positive personal memories are more likely to view their phone as an actual extension of themselves. Our guest today is someone who will take us deeper into that conversation, Felicia Wu Song. Felicia Wu Song is a cultural sociologist who studies the place of digital technologies in contemporary life. Having trained in history, communication studies, and sociology from Yale, Northwestern, and University of Virginia, her research is oriented around the rapidly evolving digital technology industry and how the adoption of social media and our phones alter our families, community, and organizational life. Felicia Wusong is the author of Restless Devices, Recovering Personhood, Presence, and Place in the Digital Age. So I usually open the show by reading to my guest something that they've tweeted or posted on Instagram, but Felicia, when I was going online and digging to find all of your receipts and footprint, I couldn't find anything. Can you let us know kind of your thought process behind that? Why are you taking a break from being online? Yeah. Um, so I used to be on Facebook. And a couple years ago, when um, certain things started hitting the fan with Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook, I pulled away. Mm. and was like, mm, I don't really want to support this guy and the kinds of decisions that they're making. Um, and I was also realizing that every time I posted, I spent like half of my consciousness, whatever I was doing through the day, I was thinking about that post yeah. <laughs> and thinking about, was anyone responding? And that was bothering me. <laughs> it was bothering me that I was like going through my day, still want like my mind and consciousness was somewhere else. And so I just stopped. I just was like, I gotta, I gotta just stop. And then I just, I just walked away. I just kind of I didn't announce it to anyone. I didn't, I just was like, I just stopped using it. Um, and then uh, just more recently, I completely deactivated, like got my account off and everything. And so I, I think part of it for me um, is it's twofold. It's um, kind of being upset with the industry um, mm. and feeling like these platforms aren't being responsible 
Um, mm. They're they're making bad choices that the rest of us are kind of living out the consequences uh, with um, and not wanting to participate in that. I recognize that I, I have enough of, of privilege and luxury to be able to walk away. You know, not everyone can do that. Right. So, um, so part of it is a critique of the industry, but a lot of it is actually just self-knowledge and knowing the kind of person I am. You know, I'm also Mm. the kind of person that like I know not to go to Costco and buy the big bag of Doritos or whatever it is, because (laughs) if it's in the house, I'm going to eat it. Right. Right. Like I'm going to eat the whole bag and not let the family eat any of it because that's just who I know that about myself. Right. And so a part of it is also just realizing that for me, being on social media and actively producing content was actually creating an interior life that wasn't good for me, that was not helpful. Um, and I knew I needed to kind of step back and just be like, okay, let's, let's see how else we can live. Uh, you know, I write, I'm, I'm a professor, you know, I have a reputation to keep, I have a career to cultivate. Let's see how I can do this without mm. social media. And so in some ways, I've actually, you know, now that I've come out with this book, it's kind of like a fun experiment because I know it's sort of like the obvious hole in my package um, of sort of like, well, where are your followers? How are you getting this out? And so it's been a really interesting experiment so far, just a couple of weeks in to see like, okay, let's see what happens. You know, how does one build a, a particular kind of reputation um, how does one sell a book without social media? Which I think is a really important part of this conversation. Because typically on this show, what we do is we talk to content creators and you create content, but <laughs> in in your real work and you're a leading scholar in your field. And I, I am super excited for our people to just listen to kind of the cautionary warnings of of this thing that we're using and engaging with every single day. Can you tell us a little bit about your origin story? What made you start studying the field of sociology and digital technology? Um, Yeah, so it started right after college. I was teaching at a private school. Um, And I know this is really going to date me, Um, but it was the year that they brought email to the boarding school. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Like I'm really old. Uh, (laughs) They brought email and gave all, uh, it was an all-girls school, they gave all the students, all the girls email accounts, and um, and we just started. Like, everyone just started using their email in this, you know, broad-based mainstream way. As a teacher at the time, and I was also living in the dorms, I was really struck by how we had no conversations, no formal conversations guided in any way about how bringing email into our lives was actually going to change our residential experience, right? Mm. Our communal experience. And so that got me interested in how it is that actually in American society, we don't talk very much at all about uh, the social impacts of our media and technology unless something really bad has happened, right? Mm. Um, And so that got me interested in just um, wanting to learn more right, about what the history of media and technology has been, um, how have um, we talked about, you know, discursively as a culture, how do we tend to approach technology? Um, and 
um, that kind of, you know, I came in with a history major, so I was always thinking historically. Um, but then when I got into sociology, that started helping me understand that there are these systems and structures, right? That, that mm. it's not just the device. It's just not, it's not just the TV or the iPhone or the Alexa. It's an entire system of industries, culture, norms, institutions that are all reinforcing a particular way of being um, and living. Um, and so it really started back in, in that, um, that moment teaching at that high school. And then I started reading some books, um, stumbled across Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. who talks about, you know, how it's not content that actually impacts us in media, but it's the form, right? It's the practice yeah. of, of back then he was talking about TV, right? But the practice of watching TV and getting information through TV, right? And so that was really influential um, in, in my interest in, in the form, right? The practices of what we do with our technology rather than the content. There's obviously a lot to say about content, um, but I think we don't think as much about the way that the form um, and the norms of the practices shape us as well. Yeah. And as a communication person, you know, what we say is content is king. And in when we look at these fields like technology and communication, it forces us to be aware that there is this other system that is happening outside of, oh, well, I'm posting positive content, but there's this other thing that's happening. Your book is called Restless Devices, Recovering Personhood, Presence, and Place in the Digital Age. Talk to us about what you tell us in that book. What can we expect as we dig in? Yeah. So one of the arguments I try to make in Restless Devices is that Um, social media in particular is industrializing us, like Mm. us as people and our relationships. And what I mean by industrializing us is that it is taking our identities and our relationships and applying a market and bureaucratic logic to how we understand and navigate those. And so um, I think in, in more common language, we can think of it as um, our identity becomes commodified or our relationships become commodified. They become objects, right, mm-hmm. that then are bought and sold. Um, we might think it's for us, you know, like if we're getting more followers, it's, you know, we might be selling a brand, right? Um, but the truth of the matter is actually all of the engagement that we are looking for is actually serving someone else's interest, right? We are all playing in someone else's backyard Mm. um, when we're on these platforms. And so um, the industrializing process um, has a way of um, quantifying um, our worth, right? Uh, The number of posts or likes, Um, or retweets that we get, right, has a way of starting to shape our sense of identity and even the content that we produce, right? Because we see what other uh, popular, you know, tweets or content are. And so we kind of perform in ways that Mm -hmm, mimic mm -hmm. that, right? So we also become performative. Um, And and I know that's that's kind of different depending on whether you're using social media for professional purposes or personal purposes, right? That performance 
uh, you know, we talk a lot, uh, the industry talks a lot about um, authenticity, right? And and yeah. I know that's a live conversation. It's been a live conversation for a while. Um, and so, but, th- but I think the performance aspect is always um, tricky, right? Um, it's tricky to know when to turn it off, right? Or, or like what's left once the performance is over um, mm. in ourselves. Um, and then there's a way in which even when we are um, on these platforms, there's a way in which I think um, I kind of draw from this social theorist, Zygmunt Bauman, who says that in the digital age, eye-to-eye contact with someone next to us is considered waste, mm. which is just a huge indictment, right, in all of us. Um, you know, the sense of like whatever's happening in my proximate environment actually is a barrier. It's in the way. It is an interference mm. on the online dynamics that are happening, right? And I feel that all the time when I'm waiting online at the supermarket or, you know, just kind of in the what I think of as dead space, right? There's people around me, but they're just sort of waste, right? Because I can be on my phone being, quote, productive um, or entertained, um, and I can kind of try to just block out, right, everything that's happening around me. And so I think there are lots of different kinds of tendencies that we can be trained into if we're not intentional um, and recognizing the ways in which each of us might have different propensities, right, to being trained and formed in ways that end up being impoverishing, I think, um, in the end for us. This is something I think about a lot. I I just remember when I started teaching, this is over 10 years ago, but I remember you would often see students walking with their headphones on across campus and they're listening to music. Yeah. And I see that less now. Now, you know, they're kind of looking down at their phone as they walk across the campus. And I'm somebody who, when I'm in line, I'm a communication person, right? So I always think, don't take it out because who knows what potential for relationship could be next to you mm-hmm. at a Starbucks. And you just, you never even go there. You, so you don't know what you've yeah. missed out on yeah. or on a plane. You totally. know, if you get to talk to somebody, I've had some of the best conversations sitting next to people on planes for a three-hour flight, mm-hmm. and I don't use my phone. And so then we get to engage with the people around us. So as you've deleted it, you just got rid of that temptation? Or are you somebody who tried to be really intentional even when you still had Facebook or had email on your phone? Or do you still have email on your phone? Is that a temptation for you when you're on a flight or at waiting in line at the grocery store? Um, yeah, so I still have email on my phone. Um, and yeah, it's it's still, the siren call is always, right? always singing in my ear. Because <laughs> it was funny when you said that you, what you remember is them introducing email into the classroom. I remember being addicted to my email. Mm, yeah. I remember just wanting to sit with my laptop open <laughs> to see who had written me because it was this, it was the first time that you had that instant gratification, that instant connection yes. of somebody wants to talk to me. Yeah. What did you see in the classroom? In what ways did you see it impact it? You know, I mean, I think what strikes me is always the way in which what's on our screens is presumed to be more interesting than what's around us. Yeah. Um, and there's just something kind of strange um, about that. Um, and And some of it, 
you know, one can explain by, well, you know, there there are some serious experts that are designing these apps now um, that know, right, the color of that button or that the tone of that notification is is actually chemically triggering, right, that that mm-hmm. reward system. Um, so some for some of us, it might be like, actually, we've kind of become physiologically adapted, right, um, to responding in a positive way to what's going on in our screens. But I think there is this sort of... Um, aura that technology has in American culture that it always has, right? Um, And not just with digital communication or information technologies, but even, you know, the technologies like the Hoover Dam or, you know, the Mm. the train, you know, the steam train. People were always like amazed, right? (laughs) And, And there is something amazing, right? There is something worth being amazed about, Um, But we are a culture that has so celebrated and even um, prioritized um, the digital um, because it it it's there's the novelty factor. But I think what's also built in is this sense of a sense of the cool, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. Like the cool is online and everything around us really is just kind of dull. We privilege the disembodied, right? We think that what's happening online is actually um, in some ways superior to um, what's happening in kind of our proximate spaces, you know? And so that's why I think in in the book, I'm, I'm trying, you know, especially for persons of faith, I think we have a call to need to grapple with the reality of our embodiment, the reality that we are, we have been created with presence, um, as you mentioned. You know, being in the supermarket or being in the airplane, right? Like, what do we do with the fact that that we are called uh, to be persons um, who are present to each other and in mm. the places that our bodies happen to be at? Um, that's something I think that is super easy to lose track of um, when we're always just kind of on our screens. One of the books that you wrote is called Virtual Communities, Bowling Alone, Online Together. I'm going to buy this book today um, as well, because that title I just thought was super fascinating. What What is the premise of that book? Yeah, so that book was written pre-social media, if anyone okay. can remember any of that. <laughs> and so remember, there was a time when people had online communities that were basically moderated forums. Yes. Right? Um, and, um, so you had affinity groups, you know, like you got on, uh, you know, I, I think a lot of us, you know, I studied mom bloggers after I wrote the book. And so I think we all know they're like, you know, these networks and communities. And, and so the book was more about these moderated communities and, um, the title, right. Uh, bowling alone online together was really, um, a nod to Robert Putnam's book, Bowling Alone, which came out years before that, where he argued that American democracy um, was sort of on the rocks because we weren't living life together anymore, mm. like in proximity, right? Like in our neighborly networks and connections. Um and so he had a question, you know, he kind of ended the book with a question mark, like what's going to happen to democracy when we're not gathering and meeting people that maybe we have very little in common with. Maybe we actually disagree on a lot of things, but we enjoy bowling together. Right. And that creates mm-hmm. a kind mm-hmm. of bond. Um, and, 
he, in his book, he had a chapter that said, well, maybe maybe it's online communities. Maybe people are just going to meet online and that's going to be kind of the replacement to the old-fashioned bowling leagues. Mm. Um, and so in the book, my book, Virtual Communities, I study the form and the design of these moderated communities and make an argument that in its um, commercialized state, um, because we kind of get grouped into um, these sort of niche uh, market group type um, gatherings or, or communities, that the online groups don't have much um, structure to provide resources for democratic engagement either. And of course, this was all before all that we have seen with gotcha. political polarization, you know, in the last, you know, 10 years. Right. Um, so now it's just like we're, we're way down the path in, in a totally different way. I just want to say like something I love about you and just to affirm your calling and your anointing is it is very rare to have somebody like you with your credentials, a total academic studied at Yale, right, who is able to communicate in a way that the everyday person can understand. And so I am so grateful for you and for this book. And I think it's really important, especially for Viral Jesus listeners, to dig into a book like this because it's so rare that you get to understand these academic concepts in a practical, real-life way by somebody who can communicate them. Was there a moment for you when you were gathering all this information that you said, I don't want to just like write a research paper or put this at a conference. I want to make this available to the everyday person. Yeah, well, um, so the first book, Virtual Communities, was a straight up academic book. Okay. Um, and after that, I mean, in some ways I always knew, you know, when I started pursuing graduate school, I knew that I wanted to at some point write a book that normal people could read. Right. <laughs> um, because I enjoy, you know, reading books by academics that I could understand at that right. time and benefited from the kind of frameworks and perspectives that they offered. Um, and, and I loved it when they actually told stories, right? Um, so I knew from the beginning I wanted to, at some point in my career, write a book, right, that could have the same kind of reach. Um, and I think... Um, a lot of the book also actually comes out of opportunities uh, from speaking with uh, different communities and churches and on campuses. Um, I really enjoy the Q&A and the post-talk time of actually listening to people and just talking to people about how they're navigating their digital lives. Um, and so the book really, in large part, came out of those Q&A times um, and listening to people's stories and thinking about the parents, thinking about the students, thinking about the pastors, thinking about the content creators who I talked to who had really good questions, hard questions, um, and wanting to write to them. Um, and so that was very much at the root of, of this particular book. This episode is brought to you in part by World Relief, an organization that partners with the local church to serve the most vulnerable. Around the world, increased conflict, the lingering effects of COVID-19, and disasters caused by our changing climate have left millions of people in desperate situations. Many are fleeing their homes and are facing starvation, persecution, and more. These overwhelming challenges cause many of us to wonder, can I make a difference? The answer is simple. Yes, you can. When you join The Path, 
World Relief's monthly giving community. You partner with World Relief in bringing hope and transformation to the millions experiencing vulnerability around the world. And when you partner with your monthly gift by September 30th, your first year of monthly gifts will be matched dollar for dollar up to $25,000. Double the impact of your giving and visit worldrelief.org slash viraljesus today. I told you earlier before we started recording that I've been studying you. I've been watching a bunch of your (laughs) interviews today. And I saw something you said in an interview. You said, I've been in this game since before Facebook. And I thought that was really fascinating. What would you say to a content creator who is just so encouraged by the things that they've seen online, right? And, And the ways that they've been able to share the gospel using online resources. What caution would you add for them to just take note of? Um, what I would say is, um, yes, I would first say yes, like there are (laughs) lots of benefits and wondrous things that can happen online, you know, and, and I don't want to take away from that reality at all. Like incredible things have happened at the same time, we would be really naive not to recognize the costs that Mm. come with that both to the people who might be um, listening or watching our content or reading our content, and also to ourselves. Um, I think um, the more I've kind of thought about this and written about it, the more I'm convinced that for people of faith, um, our digital lives and our digital practices is actually a matter of discipleship, right? Mm. That that's actually at root what we're talking about. Um, and like so many parts of our lives, the hardest things to have clear sight about are the things that are also good, right? Um, like wonderful parts of our lives that bless us, um, that where a lot of good comes out, um, can also be um, places in our lives where we actually have a fair bit of blindness towards um, mm. and that we don't recognize the parts, uh, the ways in which it's impacting us. And like you mentioned earlier, um, that we're actually missing out on things that we don't even know we're missing out right. on. Right. Um, and whether that is the people around us um, or even what it is like to experience um, presence with oneself. You know, it's like one thing to be present to others. It's another thing to actually be fully present to oneself. Mm. And I actually think that's the hardest. That's that's the biggest challenge for us in this day uh, in our digital times is becoming people who have the capacity to be still and quiet enough within ourself to hear what's going on inside of us and also to be able to hear uh, the Holy Spirit um, speaking and nudging us in the directions that um, we need to be uh, moving towards. I think that's the biggest challenge um, for, for all of us, but I would, I would think especially for those immersed in the work of, of content creation because content creation in the digital world is so demanding. 
Mm-hmm, it is mm-hmm. so demanding of us, like all of us, all the time, right? And so the question is, well, where, where is the space, the time, the sacred zone? I talk about that in the book. Like, where's the sacred zone that we're going to say, no, like this is the space, right, without any of that? right? That it's just me and the Lord, me and myself, right? No music coming in, no podcast coming in my ear. No, like it's just space to be. Um, so I think that's the part that's, that, that is uh, the most challenging. I read in Sheryl Sandberg's book, Option B, she talks about a study where people would rather administer electric shocks to themselves yeah. than sit with their own thoughts. Nice. Yes. And I was just curious, have you seen anything in the research, especially right now, I think after a pandemic and after mm. all of this racially charged environment that so many of us find ourselves in, mm-hmm. after a very polarizing Christian experience for a lot of people right now, yes. I think the temptation is probably greater to disassociate from my real experience, <laughs> yeah. right? Because I don't want to deal with it. I know. we all. Are, are you yeah. seeing anything in the research right now about after the pandemic and just with depression so high, is it making us want to go online more? Mm, yeah, that's a good question. I think it's probably still fairly, um, it's like too soon to know. Okay. And it's too soon to disentangle what exactly is causing the, you know, like increased time online. It's mm-hmm. just hard to figure out what is driving that. Um, so I, yeah, I think when it comes to effects, there's always a lag in the research. Um, it just takes some time to figure out. But I think you're right on that when we're dealing with so much that is so hard, Um the the drive to escape is very high, right? Uh, very high, and so you know the question we need to ask ourselves is, you know, what we find on our screens is easy. Um, it's easy. It's fast. Um, it's stimulating, not always rewarding in the end. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, I've spent plenty of evenings after scrolling way too long. For me, my my vice is. Um, uh, shoe shopping online. Um, <laughs> so I can spend hours looking at shoes. Right. Um, and I, you know, it, and I finish and I'm like, well, what did I do? What did I just right. spend my Friday night doing? Right. And so I think, um, again, this is where the, the traditions of the faith, um, have, have something to say, right. To say like, Hey, you know, um, we are restless, um, and we will restlessly seek after fulfillment. Um, but in the end of the day, we were created for communion with God, right? Um, and and we need to lean into that, right? And figure out, well, what practices are there that will help me to lean into that which ultimately fulfills me? And that doesn't always, you know, I think when I say things like that, people think, okay, you're just telling me I need to go pray or something like that. Yes, maybe. Uh, Yes, maybe. Maybe we need to go into our prayer closet and and rant and cry and just have it out, you know, because a lot of us, it's just like we kind of keep, I certainly keep a lot of it bottled in, Mm -hmm. right? Um, But I think there are also just embodied practices, right, where we can encounter God's presence, you know, whether it is 
in the baking or in the gardening, or for some of us, it's in running um, and some kind of exercise, um, tending to something physically, I actually think for people who do spend their careers online, doing something with your body can actually be really grounding and super Mm. helpful. You know, and maybe some of you all are dancers out there, you know, like get a dance, right? And listen to the music and use your body. Um, we we just increasingly are, and the pandemic didn't help, um, people who are kind of, we live outside of our bodies, you know? Um, and so many of us have been trapped in our houses. You know, we lose, we really literally lose touch with how God shows up um, when we are present in our bodies. I have to ask you this question, and I'm going to ask you some questions that other people have sent me to ask you, but before I have to ask you, have you looked into TikTok at all, the research (laughs) on that? Because I'm new to understanding TikTok. I've spent some time there, and I've never seen anything like it. The algorithm is unlike anything I've experienced as far as it figures out very, very quickly Mm -hmm. the type of videos you cannot stop watching. And I have spent so much time, and I won't even go on the app anymore because I realized... I can't stop. Like the next one plays and I'm like, oh, this is so good. One more on the exact thing I want to hear about. What have you read on TikTok, if anything? Yeah, you know, the, I haven't I haven't read a lot on TikTok yet. Again, I think there's a bit of a lag. Um, and because it's also so generational, um, right. it, it doesn't kind of expand out to the, you know, all the academics that are out there are probably a bit older, skew older than right now. Um, certainly there's younger grad students and young professors that that might hit the TikTok um, market. Um, I myself haven't gone on TikTok yet either. Um, I've gotten on Snapchat and that was already a reach for my Gen X self. <laughs> um, I was like, wow, this thing was not built for me, clearly. <laughs> All the bitmojis are way too small for my failing eyes. <laughs> so, um, so I I actually keep up with TikTok through my students. Uh, okay. My students are my window into the world, um, and so yeah, I, that's that's kind of where I keep my finger on the pulse. You know, I expect that there's going to be more coming out. Um, I can't on, wait on the world of TikTok yeah. to see. Okay, I've been asking people this season if you could sit down with my guests, what would you ask them and Aaron Joy Tweet said, I'd be curious to know about any link to physical symptoms of being less embodied when we are buried in our phones. Does it do anything to our breathing patterns? Oh, yeah. That's interesting. I don't know if there are studies that have actually gathered data on that, um, but it does make me think of this one exercise that I mentioned in my book. Um, for people to do, which is called, uh, David Levy um, wrote about this exercise. It's called a phone meditation. Mm. Um, And you go through this 30-minute exercise where you start with the phone um, face down, off. You observe your body. You observe your breathing. Then you take the phone into your hand, still off. You observe your body. You observe Mm. your breathing for a couple minutes and then you turn it on and then you go to kind of your go-to app and kind of spend a little time doing what you do. And then you take a moment to observe again what's happened. And so I have my students do this Mm. and, and, and you go through the whole cycle. Then you put your phone away and you kind of observe at each stage. 
And my students talk about how they actually like they feel their shoulders kind of curling in over the phone. Mm. Right. And and for many of them, when they're when the phone is off, but in their hand, it's actually fairly stressful. Um, They feel a fair bit of anxiety and anticipation um, that they, they kind of physically physiologically like they can't sit still. Right. Um, and then when they turn it on, it actually calms them down. You know, wow. it's like it's like having a smoke. You know, right? It's like that's right? exactly what it sounds yeah, yeah, like. Totally, yeah. But then that they notice to your listeners' question, they notice that their body has this like tensing quality, right? Kind of curls in after having kind of prior kind of sat and kind of. Um, kind of grounded themselves. And so, yeah, I, I think that's a great question. It's a great study. Um, yeah. It's funny that you mentioned that. I'm somebody that practices like biblical meditation and mm-hmm. prayer, quiet time. And I remember one day meditating on um, just some Bible verses for about 30 minutes. And then I, afterwards, I opened up my phone and I went to Twitter and I imme- it was like an immediate jolt. Mm. to my body that I had never felt before, except that I had just brought myself to a very peaceful place. And I immediately felt that tensing that you Mm. just talked about. Mm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Joshua K underscore Smith says, (laughs) ask her if she will get on Twitter. We need her. (laughs) I I need to be stronger. I need I need to probably uh, high, have higher self esteem and have seen many therapists before I can get there. <laughs> right underscore n underscore seek says I'd love for you to ask her what practices help people keep the digital world in its place, mm. meaning not taking over our lives, but how can we allow it to just enrich it? Yeah. Yeah, well, and I love that the way the question is framed. It is keeping it in its place, right? Yeah. And, and I'm not saying that we got to throw it all out or that everyone has to get off, you know, Facebook. Except like she has thrown it all out, people. <laughs> it's totally shut down. <laughs> She's being kind to us. Um, to me, it is it is really about um, um, setting up small little boundaries for yourself. Right. Mm. And so that can be boundaries of place or time. So for some of us, um, it might be the bedroom, you know, like if you, if you live in a place where there's enough rooms, right. If the bedroom can become a sacred place where it's like, you know, I'm not going to bring the devices in here cause I'm actually doing rest here or I'm, I'm practicing my meditation or my yoga or whatever it might be. Um, but I think even, even small things like, you know, when I wake up in the morning for the first 10, 15 minutes, I'm not going to touch a screen, mm-hmm. you know, um, 10, 15 minutes is really short in the context of the day. But I think for most of us, 10, 15 minutes, right when we wake up and, you know, I know people wake up differently. Some of us are anxious wakers and some of us are kind of groggy, just slow wakers. Uh-huh. I'm an anxious waker. So like I wake up and I'm like, <laughs> okay, straight out. yeah, I'm <laughs> like, go. I got, I mean, I'm groggy, but I'm like thinking about the 20 million things I need to do before right. I even get out of bed. And so not getting on my device to n- start kind of managing my life is super hard. And 10, 15 minutes in the beginning was really hard for me. Um, But as I kept experimenting with it, and I like thinking about it, these, I know we talk about practices, but I actually like thinking about these in terms of experiments, because I think we are different people, you know, and different people need or 
um, they need different things. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it was experimenting with, okay, let's try 10 minutes. Let's try 15 minutes. Let's try 20 minutes. Let's see how this goes. Maybe this is the sociologist data collection part of me. (laughs) (laughs) That's kind of like, let's just see what happens. Um, But as I kept doing it, it became not only easier, but it's become a refuge for me Mm. now because I've, I've given myself that permission. And I've realized my life is not the poorer without, you know, having not spent, it's actually a lot better, you know? Mm. So my first 10, 15 minutes is making my tea, looking outside the window, taking in the sunrise if it's there, right? Um, Reading my Bible, trying to breathe, remembering to not just half breathe, but like full breathing, right? Um, And trying to do that at night too. Actually, not going to bed with my device, not going to bed, having just texted or checked my emails because that always stresses me out. I try to get off all my devices at least half an hour before I go to bed. Um, And so those are small things. The other thing I mentioned in the book, actually, that a lot of people find very amusing, but I actually find um, kind of an interesting experiment again, is a uh, a lot of us use our digital devices to multitask. Um, do lots of things at once because we we feel like we're being more productive. Um, but we could try monotasking, mm-hmm. um, doing just the thing you're doing, right? right. Um, and to me, the one of the most powerful monotasking experiments I've done with myself is driving. Um, when I drive, um, there are times when I just drive. You do not. There's nothing drive. playing. Nothing you're playing. just hands. Wow. Yeah. And then again, in the beginning, it was terrifying. (laughs) (laughs) But but it became a time because my life was, you know, I'm a professor. I'm a wife. I have kids. Right. It's just there's a lot of input a lot of the time. Um, And so when I started monotasking, when I drove, um, sometimes it was the only time of the day when I was alone with my thoughts and not something coming in at me, you know, like, yeah. and and nothing else I could do. Like, you know, there weren't dishes to wash. There wasn't, you know, something else I could tend to. I just had to get from point A to point B, <laughs> right? And and that became um, a really precious time um, in my days. Um, and so monotasking, you know, maybe it's not driving for some of us. It might be running or yeah. doing laundry or washing the dishes. You know, it's it's a way of of being present to the the thing you're doing or the place you're yeah. driving by. You know, like I never see the places that I drive by because it's so routinized. But when right. I'm not listening to an awesome podcast, which I also <laughs> usually am, right? Like this one, right? Um, I, I actually start noticing where I'm driving. I'm like, right. oh, look at that house. They've done something different. You know, I wonder who lives there. You know, that kind of thing. And I think those are those are moments that, again, we might miss out on, especially if, if the Lord is nudging us. Or I think of a friend who I haven't thought of in a long time. You know, um, those are all just gifts that would otherwise be just non-existent if I was occupying my mind already. I love you. I love this conversation. Felicia Wusong is author of Restless Devices, Recovering Personhood, Presence, and Place in the Digital Age. Felicia, I want to end every interview by asking this question. Our show is called Viral Jesus. 
Virtually all credible historians, Christian and non-Christian alike, agree that there is plenty of evidence that a man named Jesus actually lived and walked this earth 2,000 years ago. How can we, 2,000 years later, best communicate who Jesus was and what his mission is today? Hmm. I think in the context of what we've been talking about here, I actually think that the incarnation of Jesus, his capacity to be fully present to everyone he encountered um, is a witness that we can all live into. But in addition to that, you know, his, his regular habit of just stealing away on his own, right? Even when he had way more important demands than than most of us have, and way more people asking for healing and, right, these real needs, urgent needs. The only way he could do that, he knew he needed to spend time with the Lord. He just knew, right? And so he's just someone who lived out what it meant to be embodied, limited by time, limited by space. He couldn't heal everyone. He couldn't get to every region, right? He knew his calling only because he had spent his time in quiet with the Lord. Uh, Yeah, I think that's the best way we can live into that witness. Thanks, Felicia Wusong, for joining us for this episode. We like to end every episode with a little segment I call Growing Viral, and this is where I give you some direct strategies you can implement into your real life that will help you be a better communicator and connector both online and off. Here is your Growing Viral homework. Something I do to change my social media habits is that I won't get on social media if I haven't had worship that day. So I kept saying I didn't have time to read my Bible, but then I did seem to make time to scroll my feed. So a rule I put in place for myself, and I did this like five years ago, is that I will not get online unless I have had worship that day. If I don't have time to have worship, guess what, Heather? You don't have time to get on the internet. Another boundary I placed on myself is that I have a social media Sabbath and I do this every single week. For me, that's Friday night sundown to Saturday night sundown. And I don't check my feed, my notifications during that time. It's it's just this time where I let myself reset and regroup and remember that my phone is in fact not an extension of who I am. What boundaries can you place on yourself with your social media? What safeguarding can you put in place to make sure your phone is a tool and not a crutch? That's your homework. Viral Jesus was brought to you by Christianity Today. I've been your host and creator, Heather Thompson Day, producer and audio engineer, Lauren Joseph, and executive producer, Ed Gilbreth. Please review and recommend us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Make sure you subscribe and rate us on your preferred platform. Next episode, we will talk to Tish Harrison Warren about one of my favorite spiritual practices, prayer. I'll see you next week for another conversation where a viral Jesus guest talks and you and I listen so we can learn. I love growing with you on Viral Jesus. This episode was brought to you in part 
by The Table Podcast at Dallas Theological Seminary. Listen to rotating hosts discuss issues of God and culture to demonstrate theology's relevance in everyday life. Find it on your podcast app. For videos and more, visit dts.edu podcast.